All right, well, I said this last week, but until we started preaching in Philemon, or however you say it, I realize other people have other ways to say it. You know, uh, Koine Greek, which is the language of most of the New Testament, is a lost language. Do you know this? So it's not, it's not spoken on the earth today. Of course, there's modern Greek, but it's very different than the ancient version of Greek. And so none of us really know how any of this stuff is pronounced anyway. So you can say it however you want. <laughs> you might be right, you might be wrong, but no one will be here to tell you, okay? Um, but I said, until we read this, this little uh, book, this little section in the New Testament, I don't think we've ever read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting, but we have for this. Um, so I'm going to read it again, uh, but before I do, let me just remind you of some of the context, and if you weren't here last week, um, this will be a really good review for you. Um, last week, we were talking about um, how love changes the nature of our relationships, especially relationships where one of us has more power than another person, and Philemon is a great example of that. Today, we're going to look at something different. Uh, we are going to look at how Paul addresses a really difficult discipleship issue in a fellow Christian. So this is a very sensitive issue, an issue that could cause offense. This conversation could definitely go wrong in many ways. Um, but I think that one of the reasons the early church included this letter in our Bibles and recognized God's spirit on it and in it um, is that it is such a beautiful example of difficult conversations in discipleship. And I think that's really key for us because many of you are walking with people, you're walking with each other, and it's unavoidable that sometimes we're going to have these difficult conversations. And I think there's so much gold in Philemon, so many things that we can learn from. So here's the difficult situation, the context, just to remind you. I think I have these names up on the screen. Philemon is an early Christian in the ancient city of Colossae where Paul had already planted churches. We know that there's a church meeting in Philemon's home um, being led by a team of men and women who are listed at the beginning of this letter. And so this is one of probably a network of churches that are meeting in, that's meeting in Philemon's home. And very typical, Philemon, if he's a homeowner and has a household, it means he's probably in an upper stratosphere of Roman society, ancient Roman society. And like all people in Roman society in the upper tier, uh, more wealthy people in that time and age, he was a slave owner. Now, I mentioned that American slavery is actually in some ways worse. Uh, the chattel slavery that, that kind of was embedded in the American experience at the beginning of our nation um, is actually worse in some ways because it was tied to skin color. And that meant that because it was tied to a physical characteristic, it meant that even after emancipation, we're still dealing with all of the um, effects of having existed in slavery for so long. Um, ancient slavery in the Roman world was a little bit different. It was not connected to race. Um, and there actually was the opportunity to gain your freedom in most cases, um, which was not the case uh, for huge portions of United States slavery. And yet, there's still a power dynamic represented here, right, of one person that's more powerful than another. From what we can tell from this letter, um, Philemon's, one of Philemon's slaves named Onesimus did something wrong in Philemon's household, something wrong per the conventions of slavery. Maybe he stole something. 
um, wronged his master in some kind of way. And then, fearing punishment, because he doesn't have any power, he flees to Paul. Paul is in prison in Ephesus at this time. And he flees to Paul because he knows that Philemon respects Paul, and he's hoping that Paul will be able to advocate for him in some way. Paul receives Onesimus in prison, ends up leading him to Christ, and now after Paul and Onesimus have journeyed together for some time, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter and asking Philemon to do something radical. This was my sermon last week. It's to insert love into this slave-master relationship. And we said last week that if love is inserted into the slave-master relationship, it will mean the end of slavery, right? It will mean the liberation of slaves and the liberation of the oppressor, Philemon, from the oppression of thinking it's okay to own slaves, right? And so love has a way of releasing both ends of the spectrum, right? into relationship with one another. And that's what we talked about last week. But today, I want us to look at the same passage, but with a different lens. And it's how Paul addresses this very challenging issue in Philemon's life, because this is an issue that could easily blow up. And I bet you have had, many of you have had these kinds of conversations in discipleship, going into a conversation thinking, oh, I gotta bring this up, and this is sensitive, and it really could blow up, you know? I don't know how this is gonna go. Um, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of someone's discipleship, the cost of their obedience, right? Um, And that's going to happen, by the way, because there is a cost to following Jesus. We are wrong to rescue people from that cost, right? That's not what we're doing as disciplers. We're not rescuing people from the cost of following Jesus, right? There's a cost in following him. And you've heard me say it many times, Jesus is so wonderful that people will do anything for him. Um, even things like totally overturn what seemed normal in the culture at the time. Owning slaves did not seem wrong to the Roman mind. This is totally culturally acceptable. And this, by the way, is typically where we hit the difficult conversations in discipleship, is when we have to ask people to give up something or to do something that is totally against what the culture calls normal. When culture has normalized things that seem wrong, that are wrong, and now we're asking them to do something opposite of that, we're very aware, aren't we, as people who are discipling, that that person is hearing our voice, but they're also hearing the voices of so many other people. They're also hearing the spirit of the age. They're getting counsel from all kinds of places that are not gonna be saying the thing that we're saying to them, right? And so there's a weight to that conversation, right? And we do have a responsibility not to rescue people from it, not to change the scriptures, not to say, well, no, it's okay for you just to do what the culture says. That's not what it is to follow Jesus. Um, We have to hold out the counsel of the word of God to people, right? But in a way that artfully brings them closer to Jesus and gives them real choices, and that's what we're gonna be talking about today, all right? So let's read this passage. I gave you the context. Philemon 1, 1 through 25 says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. 
I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I'm not going to point out everything that I could from this. I, I, I really think, like, in our ministry network, uh, we're probably going to end up developing a training out of Philemon on some of this stuff, because many of the things that we value here at the Gospel Tab or in our broader network about how to disciple people is really here in what Paul does <laughs> with Philemon. Um, we see it in the scriptures, and there's so much to learn from. So I want to just point out a few things. That first of all, Paul approaches Philemon as a friend, Verse 1, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Remember, I said this last week, if you were here, that a key word that shows up in a couple of places in this letter is the word partner, which is the Greek word koinonia. And it denotes, that word partnership denotes a mutual sharing in the same thing. We said last week that the spiritual reality, no matter how Roman society is set up, the spiritual reality is that both slave and slave owner if they are in Christ, have partaken and shared in the same grace. They're coming to the same communion table, right? Um, and so this means that for some of us, grace has lowered us from an earthly position that made us think we were better than other people. But for some of us, grace has lifted us, right? If the world told us that we were less than other people, Grace has lifted us. And in most of our lives, there's probably places of pride where we thought we were better, and there's places where we thought we were less than. But grace has a way of working all of that out in our lives and in our relationships and bringing us into a mutual experience of God's grace. And this is kind of Paul's whole thesis, is that if that's true, if we're participating in the same grace, irrespective of what society does or does not say about us, then that's going to change the nature of our relationships. So Paul is practicing what he preaches here, 
when he reaches out to Philemon as a friend and as a fellow worker, saying, Philemon, we are participating in the same grace. So Paul, even though Paul has some spiritual authority in Philemon's life, and he's going to reference that some in this letter, nonetheless, he is approaching him from a place of mutuality, from a place of friendship. And this is what we do for the individuals that we are discipling as well. We recognize that there aren't two classes of Christians, those who get discipled and those who disciple, right? In the kingdom of God, we all can give and receive. We all are participating in the same thing. And so however we walk beside people, we walk beside them in a spirit of mutuality, in a spirit of friendship, right? Um, we get into the details of their lives and they into our lives. They're vulnerable with us, but we're vulnerable with them too, right? We approach them in this kind of way. I was thinking about this this morning. You know one of the ways I can tell if mutuality actually exists in a group of people or not? It's how the people who are not in the room are talked about by the people who are in the room. Because if we think that people are a different category than we are, then we will talk about them that way when they're not in the room, right? Sometimes you can just hear, sometimes it's not even slander or malicious talk or anything like that. It's just that you can tell the folks in the room don't think that the people who are not in the room are part of the same category of people, right? But when mutuality exists, that mutuality carries over into the spaces where people aren't in the room. Are you tracking with me? And we see ourselves as part of the same thing. Of course, some of us might have more knowledge than others. Of course, some of us might have gone deeper in love than others, deeper in the things of the Spirit than others, but we have all participated in the same grace, and so we approach people in this way. I think you do this beautifully, by the way. Um, at least at the Gospel tab, I don't think that you, um, you know, depend on your pastoral staff or your leadership team, our elders and deacons, to do all the discipling. Um, I think so many of you, whether or not you have that title or not, um, step into these spaces of mutuality and just walk beside people. And I think many of you who do have some kind of official title um, also beautifully uh, demonstrate to us what it means to walk beside people in mutuality. So keep doing that. Here's the second thing. Paul points out where he sees Jesus at work in Philemon's life. Verses four and five, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's remember that this really is a word of correction that Paul is giving to Philemon, but his beginning point is by recognizing that Jesus is at work in this person. And I have found that when I can identify this, not in some abstract theoretical way, like, oh, of course Jesus is at work in their life. But when I take the time to actually think about how Jesus is at work in the life of a person, about how Jesus is manifesting in that person's life, about how I might learn from the manifestation of Jesus in that person's life, it changes my approach to them because there's a kind of reverence that I'm going to bring to this conversation because I'm recognizing that this person is loved by Jesus. That Jesus, even if we disagree, even if I have to correct something, this person is somebody that Jesus has made their own. And that's going to create some kind of reverence in my tone, right? Some kind of reverence in my approach, reverence in the words that I pick. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, for all the years I've been preaching here, I'm sure I haven't done it perfectly, but I've really tried to make it my practice 
um, to get in touch with God's love for you before I stand up here and preach, right? Um, Notice that Paul is saying, I always thank my God. He's prayed about this. He's prayed not just that Philemon would change and release Onesimus. He's thanked God for the way that God is at work in Philemon's life. And just that practice of praying for each other with thanksgiving, of praying with each other with humility before words come out of our mouths, right? Does so much to change our tone, does so much to change our delivery, does so much to remind us that we are all partakers in the same thing. Let's move on. Here's another thing, and this is where we're going to camp out for the, for the longest portion of today. I love this, and it's so noticeable in Philemon. Paul gives Philemon real choices. And this is not often what we think discipleship is. So I want us to really pay attention to this. Paul gives Philemon real choices, verses 8 and 9, and then he kind of wraps up this thought in verse 14. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would seem voluntary. I think what Paul fundamentally is evidencing in his leadership, in his discipling, in this portion of Philemon is the character of Jesus that is gentleness. And I think this is one of of the characteristics of what Jesus is that we often forget about or that we haven't let sink in deep enough many times into our own hearts when we consider who the Son of God actually is, gentleness. There's a quote from a pastor named Danny Silk that I really like. We've repeated it a lot around here over the years at the Gospel Tab. It says that gentleness fundamentally is the attitude that says, I don't have to control you. Gentleness is the attitude that says, I don't have to control you. It's a disposition we have that says, I don't need you to do what I'm saying. I don't need you to follow my instructions. I don't need to force you um, into some kind of mold, even if it's a good one, even if I know that I'm asking you to do the right thing. Let me be clear. Paul is convinced that he's asking Philemon to do the right thing. It's, Paul is not approaching this with this attitude that's like, oh, you could keep your slaves, you could let them go. Well, you know, it's really up to you. That's not what we're talking about. Paul is holding out to him what is right and what is wrong. He's saying, Philemon, you got, you're going to have to receive Onesimus as a brother. And yet, he does it in an attitude that says, I don't have to control you. So it's not saying that we don't address things in each other's lives. It's not that it's a free-for-all in the family of God. That's not what I'm saying at all. We are called to address things in each other's lives. Um, and, it, and it definitely doesn't mean, it's, look at what he, Paul's dealing with here in Philemon. It doesn't mean that we just let people hurt people and act like it's okay for them to do that. You know, like that's just your choice. That's not what we're saying. Um, but it does say something about our approach. You know, I think... A lot of times, we don't use gentleness in our discipleship approaches and our conversation and walking with people because we don't think it will work. We're afraid that if we are gentle, if we approach this hard conversation with an attitude that says, I don't have to control you, that it won't work. And let me tell you, if working means that they do the thing that you want them to do, and I'm not even, I'm talking like your heart is pure, like you want them to do the right thing, the holy thing. 
Um, if, if, if we're talking about working, being them doing what you want them to do, it might not work. You need to know that. Gentleness is actually about a, a way of us relating to each other in surrender and recognizing that control is an illusion anyway, that I really don't control you, um, and that really God has your story. Really God is at work, and he may be using me in it, but I may not be able to force the outcome that I want. Um, but here's where gentleness will always work. Every single time we insist on being gentle with each other, even in the hard conversations, um, it will protect and preserve the dignity of the person that we're talking to. It will express love to the person that we're talking to. If, if getting people to do the right thing is our metric of success, it might not work all the time. But if love is our metric of success, it will work every single time. We will fulfill the law in love because we recognize the full humanity of this person. Listen, Paul is writing to Philemon saying, you can't own slaves. It's important that he does that in an attitude that does not make Philemon his slave. You see what I'm saying? Paul is insisting on the freedom. He's not just saying it. And, and let's, let's just pay attention to how emotions are wrapped up in this. Paul has become very close with Onesimus. He is personally invested in this person. He wants Onesimus' freedom. It would be so easy in that emotional space to make Philemon his slave spiritual slave so that he could get what he wanted for Onesimus. But that kind of like triangulation in the kingdom of God, it goes nowhere very fast. In all of these relationships, we have to insist on each other's freedom. Gentleness is a fruit of God's spirit, it says in Galatians, which means that gentleness is what Jesus is like, which is to say gentleness is what God is like. And we often do not think of God this way. Listen, I could preach a whole other sermon on God's sovereignty how he's in charge of everything and there's nothing outside of his rulership and that's all true. But somehow in sovereignty, he has given us real choices. Somehow in sovereignty, he has been gentle with us and calls, he works with us that way. He approaches us with that kind of attitude. And this means, I wanna to introduce to you maybe a new concept, that discipleship requires self-differentiated love. I have this up on the screen. The discipleship requires self-differentiated love. What do I mean by self-differentiation? I just mean that we are emotionally healthy enough in our relationships with each other to say, I am not you, and you are not me, right? I am not my role. My identity is not the lead pastor of the gospel tab, and you are more than your role too. Your identity isn't a member of the gospel tab. That you are not your sin, you are not the worst thing you've done, that's not your identity, and I'm not that either, right? There's something in this that, that mirrors how God relates to himself in the Trinity. God is one, but in three persons, right? So our, what, what Christians have historically confessed is that, that we only believe in one God, not three, but one God in three persons, and somehow in the mystery of that, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, but one God in three persons, right? Well, there's something similar that happens in our relationships. We're all partakers. We're all, um, there's a sense in which we're one. We're all part, we come to the same table. We've all been baptized in the same water. 
We've all, not literally, you and I mean, same baptism. We, haven't all, we don't reuse the water. Um, we've, all, we've all experienced the same baptism, right? And, and we eat at the same table. We're one, and yet you are not me. And I'm not you. I'm not my role. And you aren't either. You're not your sin, and neither am I. There's something emotionally healthy about being able to keep barriers between these things. Let me give you an example. For years, I... Led, we led change here at the Gospel Tab, and there were lots of people who just weren't able to track with some of the changes you know, that, that we were leading. And it was so critical for my emotional health and for my capacity to love them well in, in making whatever decisions needed to be made to remember everything that's up on the screen, that we are more than the Gospel Tab. So if you come or if you go, that's not your identity. I'm not going to decide if you're worthy of love by how you relate to this church, right? That's not right. Um, it was so important to remember that as people didn't like the changes, that I'm more than my role, right? That this was not personal. That if someone else had been leading the change, they probably would have struggled with the same issues. So this was not personal. If I couldn't separate that and took it personally, then it was gonna be fodder for all kinds of resentment, right? All kinds of bitterness in my heart. We navigate healthy relationships better when, we were, when all of these categories don't get all jammed up together. And it's hard in church life because in church life, a lot of times we want to be one, right? But we also have to remember we're distinct, right? And that I have choices and you have choices. And we might make different choices, right? Um, that we are more than our ministries, that we are more than our titles, that we're more, our identity goes deeper than this church, Right? When churches lose sight of that and everything becomes mixed together, everyone gets offended all the time at each other, right? Because if you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm going to take it personally and I'm going to be offended, right? If, if, if I don't do what you want me to do, then you're going to get offended. But if we remember, we're one, but we're also different, and that's okay. And you see Paul doing that here. On one hand, there's this language of oneness, partaking each other. But on the other hand, he's like, Philemon, you're a grown man, right? <laughs> and I'm a grown man, right? Now, what he's advocating for is for Philemon to recognize that Onesimus is also a grown man, right? That he also can be distinct from Philemon's household, right? That his identity is not as Philemon's slave, right? So he's advocating for that, but he's loving in these healthy boundaries, which brings me to just one other observation I want to make here about not leading in control. The discipleship, as you engage hard conversations with people in discipleship, it requires non-anxious leadership. Discipleship requires non-anxious leadership. Um, you know, there's some work being done now in the field of psychology on this, but I, boy, do I see it in Philemon's letter. Do you hear Paul's tone? This is a difficult issue. He loves Onesimus, but do you see how calm he's staying? You know, addressing this in love, thinking through this stuff. Psychologists are discovering that if we're anxious as we lead other people, we can't learn from the hard things that happen, and we can't think creatively in the experience. What will we lunge for if we're feeling anxious? Control. Gentleness will be one of the first things to go out the window in our relationships with each other. And we'll be tempted to just get the job done. And the temptation gets higher when the cause is righteous, right? 
Paul's cause is righteous here. This is right to advocate for Onesimus, right? I think we really have to remember this because we have high values around here and we have a lot of sense of the rightness of some of the things that we're involved in, right? Um, to speak up for the poor, um, to look out for the vulnerable, um, you know, to defend our community, to, you know, all of these things. But even in the righteousness of our causes, we can't forego gentleness, as the way that God works in the world, right? Now, all of this is, it's easier said than done for a bunch of reasons. Non-anxious leadership is so much easier to talk about than it is to actually do it for, this is probably a whole other sermon, but for a bunch of reasons I could list, let me just give you one. One is that when you're a leader, um, more emotionally healthy people can see your non-anxious leadership as a source of strength for them. But less emotionally healthy people sometimes feel love in the currency of you participating in their anxiety, right? So it means that sometimes my phone is ringing or I'm getting an email or someone is talking to me and I can tell they want me to get worked up with them because this is how they've learned to feel love, right? If I'm anxious with them, it means I care for them. If I stay calm, it means I don't, right? So there's all kinds of temptations, right, to pick the adrenaline of anxiety, right? Not to mention that these issues of anxiety are so deep in our own souls as leaders, our life experiences, our wounds, the things that we've been through, the things that we've been let down. It's not as if we're making all these anxieties up. It's like hard things actually happen to us, right? So I'm saying this today not to say that you can't lead if you haven't arrived at this yet. I haven't arrived at this yet. I'm not bringing it up to make you feel bad about your anxious feelings. What I'm saying is, it is inescapable that if we're leading other people toward Jesus, we are going to have to lean into the reasons we have for being anxious. We're going to have to deal with those things in our soul. Um, because otherwise, we will lose our capacity to do what Philemon is doing, um, to do what Paul is doing with Philemon here, which is being creative and nuanced, to be careful, to imagine a gospel solution to this very difficult circumstance. If, if we just kind of lunge for anxiety, um, gentleness will be the first thing to go. Um, I think... There's a whole lot of what I'm describing already embedded into our discipleship culture here at the Gospel Tab. We're all learning and growing, but I see all of you do this. Many of you do this, and I'm grateful for it. Let's move on. What else does Paul do? Next, Paul sacrifices to make Philemon's obedience plausible. You can't miss it here. Paul is being very persuasive, right, in the way he's talking, um, but how do we know that Paul isn't in it for himself? How do we know that Paul isn't in it just for his own emotional connection to Onesimus? How do we know that he's really in it for Philemon too, that he has love for it? And this is a big question because a lot of discipleship, you're going to have influence and authority in people's lives. It is territory for manipulation. So the question is, how do we know that we're not manipulating? Or how do you know that you aren't being manipulated? Well, here's one thing I see in this letter that demonstrates that this is not about manipulation for Paul, but about love for all the parties involved. He's willing to sacrifice his own comfort, his own self, to make it easier for Philemon to obey. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. 
We don't disciple just by telling people, do the right thing. We don't disciple them just by saying, well, the cost is going to be the cost, and you have to deal with it. We get in it with people and say, what can I do to make obedience more plausible at cost to myself? Because this is what Jesus did for us, right? He came into it with us. So we don't just demand obedience from people. We get in it with them, even if it's at cost to us, right? Friends, this is, this is very applicable to the things we experience as a movement because over the years we have seen many people come from absolutely no, I mean, no church background, they don't even know about Jesus, and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now there's this whole way of life that seems crazy, right? I mean, everything, finances, how you spend your time, sexuality, it all seems insane if you haven't been part of that, right? As insane as it seems to Philemon that Paul would be suggesting the slaves aren't normal, right? Paul is writing a new normal, and Philemon's like, wait a second, Jesus is going to ask me to give up my slaves? Let's think about that for a second. That has great financial cost. To fi- What's he going to do, pay servants? He hasn't done that, right? How's he going to maintain his status? He's probably going to lose some. Grace lowers. Jesus is calling him to a harder place. And these are the hardest conversations we have with people here at the Gospel Tab and in our movement when discipleship comes at financial cost, when discipleship comes at relational cost, when it's going to upend the way you lived, when, when you discover that you can't just add Jesus to the way you already lived your life, but this is going to turn everything upside down, when it means that people are going to have to walk away from relationships or not engage in relationships that they once engaged in anymore, when it means that people are going to make choices that result in them having to sell their house or their car, discipleship gets real. This is what it gets like. And friends, this is why we have to access gentleness, because in those moments, I want people doing that crazy stuff for Jesus, not for me, right? Number one, you shouldn't do that for me. Don't sell your house for me. You know what I mean? Don't sell your car for me. I'm not worth it. Jesus is worth it, right? He's worth it, and he promises to reward, you know, whatever we give back to him, right? So he's worth it, but secondly, when that starts to hurt, if you did it for me, then you're gonna come back and be angry at me, and I don't want that either. What I want is I want you wrestling with a hard decision with Jesus, and then asking, I've told so many people I've discipled over the years, you have to wrestle with how good you think he is with how much claim you think he has on your life. There's a sense, friends, in which disciple. Oh, that's my next point. I'm not going to get to it. Okay, next point. Here we go. Paul appeals to relational authority. Philemon 1.19. Different, by the way, than just appealing to position. Oh, I'm the pastor here, so you have to do what I'm saying. Right? Paul says, I could go that route, <laughs> right? Because I started the church, right, in Colossae, but I'm not going to. I'd rather make a different kind of appeal but it is, it is an appeal. I mean, look at verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I hear a couple of things in this. Number one, it's that partnership thing. Paul's saying we owe each other each other, right? We're in this together. There's a sense in which as we're discipling people, we are calling people back every time to their baptismal vows, 
This is why today is such a family day, the table and the water. It's like, you said Jesus is Lord. I heard you say that. You weren't confessing that I was Lord. You said that Jesus was Lord and that it was your intention to follow him for the rest of your life. You said that this is what we do at our marriage ceremonies, right? Forsaking all others, right? It's like you said that you renounced the kingdom of darkness, Satan, and all of his works. You said that. I didn't say it. You said it. You didn't say it to me. You said it to Jesus. <laughs> In the present. You said Jesus is Lord. We're calling each other back to that reality every time. His lordship. There's a sense in which we're calling every time we, we come to this table and celebrate together, we're calling each other back to what we said at baptism, that we're part of this family, that we're partaking in the same thing together, right? So that's one layer of what I hear Paul saying. But I also hear Paul appealing to something that's very personal. It's not just in this broad sense, like all, all Christians belong to the same family, even though that's true. Paul's saying, Philemon, I journeyed with you. I was with you in this. I helped get this church established. And think about all that means. We know what that means here at the Gospel Town. It means we've suffered together. It means we've cried together. It means we've experienced setbacks together. Paul is saying, we owe each other in this. And you do owe me. And I think it's okay to appeal to that in the people that we're discipling. It's like, look, don't do it for me, but let my words carry weight because of who I've been in your life. Now, this is different. I just want to point out some like abusive things that we don't want to do. That is different than cloaking positional authority and relational authority. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, I'm the pastor, so you have to do what I say, but I know that it's wrong to say that, so I call you family. You know what I'm saying? Using family language to hide our power dynamics. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the real thing. Like, no, we're family. We've eaten meals together. And we've suffered together. Um, you know, we've cried together. It's okay to appeal to those things, to remind people that we love them and that they love us in these difficult conversations. And then, I love this, this is what I'm going to close with. Paul anticipates future friendship. Do you see the hope here at the end? Verse 22, and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. I shouldn't have mentioned this earlier, but you know what our language is for this most commonly at the Gospel tab? Some of you probably know. Invitation and challenge, right? We say this all the time. That in our discipleship relationships, we're both inviting people, which is the, the attitude that I will not reject you, but within the context of that love, we are challenging each other too and saying hard things. And I see Paul doing that so well here. He's like, look, um, prepare a, a place for me because I'm going to come visit you. It's self-differentiated love. Paul is saying, look, Philemon, don't read something into this that's wrong. No, we're still friends. As a matter of fact, let's prepare our next visit together. That's hopeful, by the way. Um, I think that's something we've learned and grown in over the years. When communities of people can't approach these conversations with hope, Hope about what's best for that person. Hope about our relationship. Hope about our friendship. If we can't anticipate a good future with the folks that we're having hard conversations with, then what is in our hearts in place of hope, which is probably fear or control or anxiety, will manifest in that conversation with that person, and we will actually operate out of that fear. 
or will operate out of that sense of control. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The relationship won't persist. Um, Friends, I can find, over the years, we've led a lot of change. We've discipled a lot of people. I've had more hard conversations. Like, whatever you think about the gospel tab, a lot of folks recognize right away, oh, this place is so grace-filled, this place. I hope you feel that way. That this place, you know, will receive me. And all, all of that is true. But don't for a second think that we don't have hard conversations around here. They happen all the time. All the time. As a matter of fact, I would say that environments of grace are actually environments that take sin the most seriously is not what people think. Because, here's why, it's because grace and love is actually what's hardest on sin, not judgment. It's actually grace and love that deals the most fatal blow to sin, right? So that means because we actually love, because we're filled with grace, because we partake, then we're going to have hard conversations with each other. Um, I've had so many of these, but when they go well and when they don't, over the years, I've been able in self-differentiated love to grow in this capacity for hope. That's like, look, maybe that conversation didn't go the best right now, but maybe we'll hang out in the house together later. You know what I mean? Like, like hey, don't write me out of your life. You know what I mean? Like, I hope we can hang out, even if we can't hang out as much right now. I hope that that can happen later right? It keeps us in a healthy place. I love it, by the way, that we have no record of what actually happened in this conversation. Think about that for a second. We do not know the outcome. It's like we're being invited into the real experience of the hard conversation when we don't know how this is going to go. You know what I mean? And we don't know. We don't know what happened to Philemon and Onesimus, right? But what we see is that Paul is full of hope and that we can be full of hope for each other in these hard conversations too. Where does this come from in Paul? I mentioned psychologists talking about non-anxious leadership. Is that where it came from? No, Paul wasn't reading that stuff. Where does this stuff come from? Um, Here's where it comes from. The chief inviter and challenger had encountered Paul. And if you know anything about Paul's story, you know that he had encountered both of those things. Remember, when Jesus met Paul, um, at first it was mostly challenge. He got knocked off his horse. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? But then right away, Jesus sends some of his people, right, to minister to Paul and to show him love. And Paul knew from the presence of Jesus directly and through the people of God that invitation and challenge is what had formed him. Paul was gentle because Jesus had been gentle with him. Because Jesus had been patient with him. That's where it was coming. As a matter of fact, we will only be able to walk in this stuff to the degree that we've encountered Jesus in these ways. But friends, if you have encountered Jesus, if your life has really been changed by Jesus, you will find that he is so gentle that somehow in the midst of his sovereignty and kingship and lordship, he gives you choices that he shapes your desires, that he could make you 100% holy today and you're going to just eradicate the sin out of your life, but he wants to be in it with you. He walks with you and he is hopeful when you walk away from him, even for periods of time. He's hopeful that you'll share a meal again together. He's hopeful that you'll be in the same house. As a matter of fact, he's hopeful because he secured it with his own blood, right, for all of eternity. 
And that's why he's so full of hope. So friends, I think we can keep doing it. It's not just enough to just talk about grace. The way we disciple has to be filled with grace, right? It's not just that we teach the gospel or model the gospel. It's that our desires, our way of speech, the way we walk beside each other is actually gospel. It manifests in our relationships, right?